Hi everyone, we'll start in, in a few minutes. Thank you for coming. Hi, Jamie. How are you? Good Everything evening, Katrina. I'm well, thank you. Yourself? Good, good. Thank you. Um, Excellent. Hope you're having fun and not picking out on too much chocolate. <laughs> well, that's the wrong day to be on a diet, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Ethan. You wanna... Yeah, if anyone wants to come up, uh, please go ahead. Um, join our discussion. Uh, we'll start in a few minutes. We will basically give a short um, summary of what happened in science society this week, especially with the guest speaker events. Um, yeah, and um, hi, Ethan. How are you today? Good. Happy holidays if you celebrate Easter or Passover. Yeah, happy holidays, hi, everyone. We don't really celebrate, we just eat a lot of food. <laughs> there you go. I had a, I had a Cadbury's cream egg. I don't know if you guys have it over oh, there. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's very good. No, you don't, you don't have Cadbury's over in America, I don't think. Yeah, you do. yeah, yeah we get, oh, yeah. Oh, you, you do? Small, you do? Yeah, yeah, little cream eggs, the chocolate with the fake yolk in there and the yellow and the white. Yeah. No, it's, it's the real eggs that have a fake yolk, you know, these are the real thing. <laughs> this is what all the eggs should have. Yeah, in Portugal we have the sweets of basically just egg yolk and sugar. It's amazing. I don't know if anyone ever ate those, but um, they're really good. Mm. And there's the this cake for Easter that's also like made out of I don't know over thirty egg yolks. But Whoa. no, no flour. I think. I like the. <laughs> so. I like the pan marshmallows. Those are. I don't know. I think they're like. It's like kind of like marshmallow with like a candy coating. Those things are good. That's only egg yolk because I know you make. Obviously, you make meringue from the white, but is this just from? This thing's from egg. Just egg yolk. It's yeah. It's egg yolk and then a lot of sugar, and then the cake version has. Um, has a little bit of flour, but it's mostly egg. It's it's really good. I know it doesn't sound that good, but it's really good. <laughs> I, I would be willing to try it. Yeah. So these apparently these um these cakes were developed like in monasteries where they had a lot of chickens. So and then it made this crazy <laughs> desserts with a lot of eggs. <laughs> Hmm. Now, what pastry did I walk in on? 
like holiday pastry in Portugal for the holidays. Pondla is, for example, one. And dovar, pondla dovar is like zipping, like dripping in egg yolk. Uh, it's really fluffy and very mm. sweet. And, and you have to use like over 30 uh, egg yolks for it. So it's like, <laughs> I made one one day. It's crazy. And it's wrapped in this paper where you put it in this oven, like, uh, you know, usually back in time in this uh, wooden oven. So it's really good. <laughs> but you don't quite bake it mm. until it's done. You leave like the bottom and the middle kind of dripping. So. <laughs> Portugal, huh? <laughs> Yeah, and then they have this little, you know, that paper that you can eat. So they make like different shapes out of it, like little boats and all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. And in the middle is that egg yolk sugar stuff. It's really good. <laughs> okay, I think we can start. Sorry for the music, but my kids are listening to a lot of music while they have to clean. <laughs> so. Uh, yeah, we, thank you everyone. Welcome to the Science Society. So this is the weekly recap. Uh, it came out of the idea to uh, not me sitting there and editing by hand, like um, the whole uh, recordings of the whole week and squeeze it into one. Uh, I think there's more fun and interactive way to do it. Uh, we kind of talk about it and then it's a one more or less than one hour recording. Uh, so it's less work and more fun for me and hopefully also for everyone. <laughs> so, because I think it's too much to listen to, like not everyone has time to listen to hours and hours of recording, I guess. so. Uh, and it's kind of rewarding, like we summarize all the stuff we learned this week. So I think it's also kind of rewarding. So on Monday, we had Dr. Ying Wifu. Uh, from, she's a professor at the Department of Neurology at the um, uh, University of California in uh, San Francisco. And she talked about her paper that was recently published in Science, um, where she found in some families that they have genes that make them elite sleepers. So she named it elite sleeper genes. Um, and um, so in these families, like these people that have these genes, uh, they don't need to sleep too many hours, but the, in those hours, the quality of sleep is so good that um, they protect basically them from um, during aging, from dementia and um, other also other mental health disorders. Um, so just a few highlights. These two FNSS mutations uh, strong genetic modifiers of Alzheimer's disease um, and they used them in mice to, to study this and this mutants DEC2 and NS, NPSR1 
reduce tau pathology in these uh, animal mouse models and um, a mutant of the DEC2 and, and a NPSR1 slowed down amyloid plaques in the in another transgenic mouse they had uh, they used for the study and um, they concluded basically that this efficient sleep um, may be an exciting therapeutic target for ameliorating um, Alzheimer's development. Um, I think um, this was a really exciting study and um, she gave a really wonderful talk um, for our audience. Uh, yeah, please go ahead and add everything. Absolutely, Dr. Fu was completely incredible. Like her, so many things she said, like we made here, like when she actually said um, that we actually can do, there's only two other things we need more than sleep, and that was air and water, because we can actually survive longer without food than we can without sleep. Like, you know, we just, everybody sleeps. We just think it's no big deal. We don't think of how crucial it is. And and then the other one, it almost seems unfair how these elite sleepers who have to sleep uh, less than we do, uh, well, unless whoever's listening is lucky enough to be one of them, um, these people are active and optimistic with potentially extra um, sort of gifts, so, uh, as you would maybe put them, with uh, um, very good like audio listeners or speaking literally like multiple languages be able to do that and and resilient to stress and um, negative life things and live longer and have less uh, health problems so the price they pay for sleeping a lot less and more efficiently is a longer healthier happier life that's a balance if I've ever heard one <laughs> Well, what I thought was so cool about this is the, um, you know, the whole mystery of what happens in sleep to achieve this and why we need it so much. Um, and I'm not clear whether it was her insights from her research or where, or to the extent that there was really hard evidence, but the suggestion that seemed profound to me is the uh, part of this main function is to actually conduct uh, repair, DNA repair, uh, in, in which, you know, it was an earlier topic of interest in grad school and specific mechanisms for, for different repair enzymes that, but, but to, um, to have that as a, uh, you know, a big part of the answer to what happens in sleep and how it's so essential is it an interesting statement at just how fragile, um, genomic expression can be without those repair systems. Um, but I thought there were a lot of implications to that as an understanding for how when sleep is done more efficiently, well, what, what gets done more efficiently? And um, repairing the damage of the day. So I, I thought that was really interesting. That definitely yeah. was Serena, and also, I'm just going to say uh, also her hope that one day, hopefully within 10, 20 years, but that's a guess, that we'd have medical apparatus that could actually evaluate our own genes and tell us what our most effective, efficient sleeping 
I would be. That was also creative interest. I missed that, unfortunately. Did she also talk about what was the cause of the damage in the first place? is just you know everyday life um, during the day the brain is busy uh, to generate a lot of um, energy and do all these tasks and then at night the system basically has time to clean up decide which memory like this is from other studies also actively deciding which memories to keep which ones to delete um, and um, Apparently, when you have these genes, um, your uh, brain just does this way more efficiently than other people. They need less time for it and do it better, do a better job. Um, and other people, you know, and then some people, uh, the body does a really, really bad job. Like the bad gaps like Alzheimer's and dementia pretty early on or other like Parkinson's or degenerative disease. So. Well, you know what other kinds of damage directly done to the DNA has to do with oxidation and, um, you know, and, you know, that can be either um, chemical oxidation or photo oxidation. But in, invariably what happens to the actual sequence, um, sure. the code itself, Ethan, uh, yeah, um, is that it, it uh, you know, normally in the DNA helix, it has a very flat geometrical structure. And when oxidation occurs, that it creates bulges and changes in the shape. And so that can have all kinds of steric effects and, and lead to um, anomalous transcription or lack of transcription at all. And so the part of the DNA repair enzymes is to is to repair those sequences back to an expressible form. So then it's essentially oxidative stress from metabolism with mitochondria and this so like free radicals and these kinds of things causing direct damage to the helix or to the base pairs and then Yeah, that's that's one form one form of damage and we have a whole slew of repair enzymes that detect and repair damage to the DNA itself. So is that damage in terms of like changing a sequence that they have to figure out the information content or is it like, like you were saying, changing the ability, like it's twisted up from the histones or something and then can't do translation? Like what are the types of things that are be cor being corrected and how is that done? So, so the mechanism I'm familiar with for endonuclease three is it has a flexible reading head that tracks along the minor groove. And when it comes onto a bump, it will cleave one side of the double helix at the phosphate backbone. And um, there's another enzyme that comes by and recognizes that, that that's, that's happened and will cleave again four, base, uh, four bases up stream. And that creates a gap that's big enough for DNA polymerase to come along and re repair that sequence, assuming that the complementary sequence right, right. tells you what that was. So, if both of those get screwed at the same time, that that cell's got a real problem. Right. Okay. So the repair is done from the very same double helix. So if you get a bump on both sides, then you, then there's no there's no error correction. 
but if it's just on one, you can see what that case. So it's like basically a little bit of a, like a short sequence of mitosis, but sticking with with the with the with the mole, the DNA itself. That's very cool. Um, there's also other mechanisms, so keeping the um, the viral DNA part um, that we have quite a lot of um, in check because when they become too active, they can also, they are very damaging for the cell also. Uh, Steatomins are, for example, um, yeah, if you look into David Sinclair's lab work and this over time, um, if there's a lot of accumulating damage going on, a lot of accumulating uh, bad translated proteins that are really not functional and that just you know, trash hanging out in the in the cells. This kind of overwhelms the checking system to keep these in check, and then they become active and also generate damage. They duplicate themselves, and the damage just um, accelerates um, more and more, and the errors just exponentially grow. And, and um, yeah, apparently, with these lead sleeper genes, um, we don't know exactly yet. Um, which all the job if they address all these issues or um, just a subset of them but they seem to do a really good job so i would assume they just are very good at, at all of these um damaging damaging checking uh, and keeping keeping basically the cell in order um so yeah so uh, david sinclair does a lot of good uh, work in that what happens over time so this then generates a chronic inflammation state of the system and then this accelerates and stuff even more so yeah it's uh, really interesting but um the assumption is that uh, a big part is also due to the glia uh, in the brain that have kind of the function of cleaning up um at night so um and I would assume that uh, just ATP production is also more efficient in, in people that have this elite genes. Because if ATP production over time is not efficient, it uh, releases more free radicals. Mm -hmm. And um, so mitochondria, they have a way higher uh, mutation rate per se, uh, 50 fold mutation rate. And the genes in the nucleus that have to basically collaborate with the mitochondria um, in those gene sites, because the mitochondria themselves don't, um, cannot generate all the, the ingredients, basically, all the proteins um, that are needed for ATP production. So part of them come from the nuclear DNA. And if um, they don't keep mutate like adapting to the mutations of the mitochondria um the 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 product doesn't align anymore with um what the mitochondria produce and then there will be an even higher free radical um release during atp production so i would assume in some uh, in some way, because I think that would be for sure the biggest, or it's assumed to be one of the biggest contribution of, um, you know, all this faulty, um, all this faulty and mutation stuff going on, increasing with age. So I would look, 
uh, there also at that, um, keeping the alignment between mitochondria and the nuclear DNA, basically. So is that, so does that mean there is this two different repair enzymes for the one for the mitochondrial DNA that operates in the same way and a separate one for the the actual cell genome or is it the same yeah the mitochondria are uh, independent and they uh, since they are like uh, from bacteria uh, origin um, they are not really that good at it uh, just the mutation rates are way higher. Um, so, um, yeah, if, if the repair mechanisms don't work there, um, it's really bad because uh, the ATP production will just be uh, releasing a lot of free radicals and a lot of, you know, there's a lot of hypothesis that um, this is the main contributor to aging and inflammation and then Parkinson Alzheimer's. So there is um, work uh, by, um, what's the anti-aging guy that, that we had, uh, Serena, I don't know if you were there. What's his name? He's very famous. I just blanking the name. Anyways, I can't remember um, his name either, yeah. Oh God, I'm getting old. Uh, anyway, they are, um, thinking uh, or they are trying to replace mitochondria uh, so transplantation of mitochondria and actually we will have a guest speaker which is not out of his lab from another lab that uh, achieved that uh, to link uh, transplantation of fresh mitochondria basically uh, which would basically be the solution like one of the solutions to address aging so um, yeah. I'm curious, did she uh, talk about whether any information about whether these repair enzymes, do, are they are they similar? Do they share a genetic um, an evolutionary connection to the same, the, gene, the same kinds of proteins that uh, start mitosis or are they very different? Well, you know, one thing that's cool about mitochondria, you know, is thought that there was a symbiotic event where we um, welcomed them in to stay and gave them their own room. But what um, I understand is their genome has reduced in size over time. Um, and it's interesting to contemplate that process. There, there's a greater economy if you can, you know, contribute to the host with, with fewer, you know, less of your own baggage. But um, perhaps it, it was also advantageous that where those enzymes were similar enough, but somewhat improved fidelity um, from the host, um, then there was an advantage to the mitochondria uh, no longer carrying them forward. So in cases where they became less viable, uh, if the host can, you know, support those functions, uh, that would still be a viable system, but in cases where they're sufficiently distinct, perhaps that's a commentary on the genes that they still carry. If I may, I just want to step in for a second uh, to acknowledge all of you uh, at the very special day of Easter, and I just want to wish you happy Easter. I am traveling today, so as a matter of 
fact for the scientific meeting on Monday with uh, Kamala Harris, but I just couldn't resist not to say hello and to express my personal appreciation for all of you here uh, leading this room for your stewardship and, and commitment to uh, sharing about the science and especially today about Alzheimer, which is uh, sometimes I feel uh, not as emphasized or not as made a, a, a star of the of the day or start of the month as this uh, as this uh, disease uh, calls for. Uh, so just want to thank you and at the time appropriate time I would be very happy to address new economic um, and funding sources for Alzheimer uh, that are emerging uh, due to the variety of uh, of uh, conditions but otherwise just happy Easter and uh, if anyone has any suggestions uh, for uh, a message uh, to Kamala Harris, please send me a direct message. I'm meeting at the Vandenberg Space Base, which is center of space and also space science to some, some degree here in California. Uh, Alzheimer is not on the agenda, but uh, I will try to be as pro prolific as possible. Uh, thank you for letting me share. You are all wonderful. And uh, Katarina and Serena and uh, Jamie from Scotland. Um, happy Easter and Ethan. Wonderful. Please quickly, please quickly share with us one of your favorite uh, uh, holiday treats. Oh, me? Uh, you know what? It was a challenging day yesterday when I was uh, buying some things for our Eastern table uh, because some um, I am from Poland, so Polish cuisine is a mixture also of Ukrainian and Russian cuisine, especially for Easter. Uh, so I was challenged how much I should include Russian cuisine uh, uh, in, in a part of the otherwise very abundant menu. Um, so, but anyway, my favorite are eggs in the form of pisanki, pisanki, which are eggs painted usually by children in Poland in a beautiful way, but also very, very accomplished artists for the purpose of being taken in the basket to the church. Um, it was happening yesterday to be blessed. And I so happened I had a room yesterday dedicated to NFTs for Ukrainian children, painted by Polish children, and they were doing pisanki as well. So that's that's my and another one is a, made out of sugar little sheep, which is also a part of of a decor of the uh, Easter table. So thank you for this very uh, special question. I appreciate. Oh, that sounds wonderful. That's beautiful. We, yeah, we also paint, like my kids also paint eggs, but because I grew up in Germany and there people do that a lot, uh, painting the eggs. So. <laughs> yes, yes. So, by the way, I will confess, I decided to stop by a Russian store here in Los Angeles in Hollywood. Um, because um, they are the only place where we can find uh, uh, even also Polish food because my justification was those are our American 
Russian people integrated. They have nothing to do with a terrifying uh, situation of Putin in 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 Ukraine. So I have some cabanose, uh, which again are famous. The form of the sausage might be Katarina also knows it because cabanose is like a Rolls Royce of sausages that is quite popular in Europe. So that's that's my Easter confession in in answer to the Eastern table uh, question. Yeah, thank you for doing that. I was actually so before the like before the actual war really started, but it was kind of obvious that it was going to start. I talked with Eric I O that we wanted actually to do a series to on purpose include Chinese and Russian scientists more because I think we are all still humans. Like the people that live in this country are all still humans and I think we shouldn't like we should stick together as humans and as scientists. And especially as scientists, um, yes. It's a beautiful initiative and I can volunteer Polish scientists and Ukrainian scientists. I am actually in regular contact with Ukrainian professors in the area especially of space science and the young Ukrainian PhDs who are space entrepreneurs. And by the way, I am flying to Poland next Saturday on on um, uh, April 24th. Uh, I will be speaking at the uh, very important European Union conference that is being organized very quickly for the leadership of Europe in in Poland. And of course, big part is dedicated to Ukraine. So there will be Ukraine ambassadors and members of the government. But so I will be in the right place to potentially uh, be an ambassador of your initiative uh, to, to connect. And by the way, I'm also f- going to Lviv. Uh, which is western part of Ukraine. It seems to be a Polish city, historical city, film city. And I have a film crew there that is filming something that I want to share with you, experiences of women and why do they choose to stay. Uh, we have some scientists women, as a matter of fact, uh, as a powerful uh, call to action also for you know protecting Ukrainian women. So I'd be very happy to take it offline and use me as as I to the, to the best ability if I could possibly support your beautiful mission. Yeah, thank you so much. I think it's so important that we don't see other humans as monsters, that we still see each other as humans, because we have to move on from this and um, prevent that we in the future treat each other that way. I think the only way to do it is to interact with each other as much as we can and see that we have so much in common. So thank you. Yeah, let's do it offline. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you, Katarina and Serena and the rest of you. Happy Eastern and uh, hope to talk to you soon. Bye bye. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Bye bye. Take care. Well, I, I, so with that, oh, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, I'll de- definitely take her up on her offer to send a message to our vice president.
<laughs> but I like the idea of um, if we could host more uh, Ukrainian scientists in this room, that would be wonderful. That was such a good idea, actually. I, I mean, we will, have, we will have a few Polish scientists, uh, like the the quantum about the inner proton whom they use from Poland. Um, yeah, we had uh, different Chinese scientists here, and we had a few Russian scientists, but they were not living in Russia. Um, at the moment when they presented but so so i'm trying to do that already but um it's not i don't have too much contact in in uh, russia and ukraine like ukraine is more programmers from like different projects but not um scientists did you want to say something Ethan? i'm sorry uh, no, I was just clapping, but I guess I don't want to go too far off topic. But, uh, I guess maybe quickly I would say that it was the result of scientists during the era of the Soviet Union, on uh, both sides, the United States and Western allies, along with scientists in this former Soviet Union, that constantly brought to light the insanity of, of the situation on many fronts to help achieve peace. So I hope we can. Uh, you know, uh, have that happen again, you know, so I think uh, that brings a perspective separate from grounds the world, separate from the military people, even sometimes the political people who kind of lose sight of these things. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I think it has a tradition, academia, academics to like, find out these things and that's why they are also usually the first ones to end up in political for a reason prison and being tortured but uh, historically uh, also in Turkey a few years ago when people a lot of people were arrested it was mostly academia and people from uh, families of friends of mine and yeah so a lot of dictators are afraid of scientists and academics because of that but yeah so uh thank you for uh pointing that out and um so yeah let's uh, use the power yeah. of science and um yeah let's continue with the next guest speaker we had and uh that was uh dr adam bonard he is a system professor um at Vanderbilt university and he works um, a lot on, on the on the fundamentals of aging biology and uh he recently published in the gerontological society of america it's really interesting um article where he <clears throat> used this botanical extract from artemisia scoparia um and gave them to C. elegans. C. elegans is a as a broadly used animal model to study like very basic uh, basic mechanism and basic in science doesn't mean like it's easy it's just the uh, the essential how things work uh, on the 
I don't know on the on the basic level. <laughs> I don't know how to use a different word. Yeah. Yeah. Have another a, one. a good a good a, a good animal model to yeah. be able to manipulate to the question you're asking or the questions you're asking. Yeah, like how so stuff like works, like from the at the very ground on, like. Um, so for that, it's a really great animal model because from the basic physiology and so on, uh, how things work in cells and neurons, uh, it overlaps uh, quite a lot. So, and they're easy to hold, they are see-through. Uh, it's easy to monitor them, uh, label them with things. You, you can, they are just see-through, so it's really easy to see what's happening in them. Um, so, and we know a lot about the elephant, so we know every single neuron, we know its genes, like, um, uh, so whatever you do to them, it's pretty easy to pin, like, not easy, but it's easier to pinpoint what mechanisms um, are being manipulated uh, with the factor you're changing and why it, it has that outcome. So, yeah, he gave that um, expert extract from this plant and saw that first he saw that um, the sea elegans became kind of more fat uh, they were they had just more fat and um, and next he also saw that um, they ended up living longer and the interesting thing was that during youth they actually moved less than the the control animals that didn't get this um, botanical extract but later on in life they it kind of switched right so they stayed at their steady activity pattern but the the other c elegans that didn't get this extract they became kind of slower and were aging faster and died earlier uh, they Right, so this is like a first study in that direction. So uh, they don't <clears throat> they don't know necessarily what every single underlying mechanism is, but um, they they could see the slap extension and um, through that compound, which is really interesting, and that also the fat. Um, um, mechanism was really important, was a important mechanism uh, that extended the life because um, they, they measured this increased, uh, increased levels of unsaturated fat and high expression of um, fatty acid desaturases and without that um, the, this, you know, the extension of life uh, did not happen. Uh, so um, the SOC-treated worms showed late-age health improvement that requires this DAF16 and this delta-9 uh, desaturated function, uh, which is really interesting because I think until now, what I, I don't know if you were always heard it, that actually fasting is good for you and being, you know, not have basically any fat is better for you and that fat is um, increasing inflammation levels in your body but apparently it's not 
as easy, right? It's um, it's more it's more complicated. Depends on what type of fat and uh, your physiology behind it. And apparently, these plants can manipulate your physiology to have this apparently protective type of fat, like an increase in this protective type of fat in C. elegans. So now we have to learn if that would also work in humans but i think it's really interesting work and i always think it's interesting when it goes completely against what we thought before so <laughs> this was completely fascinating um i think to everybody when um it made us really relook at what, how we see fat i mean i don't know about any of the rest of you but i've kind of found my knowledge or understanding of fat like evolving over time like from flatly just being bad to being um healthy there's healthy kinds and, and unhealthy to finding that there's kinds that help you live longer <laughs> like this made me want to get a book on fat just to understand it better it, it just goes to show how little we understand Another advantage in terms of using C. elegans as a laboratory um, is that they their generation, they cycle in two to three week lifespans versus humans. And the interesting part about that is that there is a, so C. elegans has 20,000 base pairs of DNA and humans have about 30. The overlap is, um, according to Dr. Bonin, somewhere in the 70 to 80% range. Which is interesting because it leads to it led to a question about where precisely is this excess fat building up on a human it would build, start in the midsection due to gravity and all that stuff but c elegans are in generally in soil media um, or other media so the physics of the environment are different the pressure the temperature all these sorts of things and despite that um, the the fat did accumulate also in the midsection. So that's a really interesting thing um, that I took away from that session. Well, fat accumulation, um, there's so many different factors that determine where fat is deposited in a human body. Um, you know, like stress and cortisol level, for example, does deposit fat more in the midsection and depending on genetics so um, but I just wanted to respond to also what what you said Jamie that it, yeah it's a really great point that that it's important that that food food consumption is not vilified and you know like cholesterol had it bad for a while and and what's responsible for myelination you know, and, and what is, what are hormones carried in, you know, for that matter, fat. So, um, yeah, that's, that's a really, that you bringing that up is, is a, a really deep and important topic and um, everything in moderation and, yeah. Absolutely. It just makes us think that no matter how, uh, how much we're learning, there's still more and, and there could be, more le more left to learn right the, the the doctor when he was here he was still talking about how much there could be to discover right i mean they're, they're on the cusp they're, just, they're still learning very much there's a lot of potential in this 
and then and just to think what's going to save us and make us live much much longer fat <laughs> the exact opposite of everything we've been told for a very very long time but it depends on who's telling you you know like when there was initially when was it because i remember reading a book uh, there was a very popular book here called Fit or Fat, <laughs> and it was just a fat-bashing book. And but, but, you know, what would your grandmother tell you, you know? And, and what would we feed, you know, what is, what is breast milk full of? It's full of fat. So, I mean, I mean, I'm acknowledging that once we're no longer babies that we don't need to, we don't need to put on... We're not trying to bulk up at the rate that we were, but but we need that. And so um, I think what what you're saying is acknowledging that wisdom and ways of knowing come from a lot of different resources and must all be considered. Yeah. Yeah, there are a few things I always thought that I don't really get and I still don't understand. So we know there's a limited amount of heart rate everyone has, right? And we know that too much um, constantly straining our ATP production uh, incre like increases just the risk of mutation. Of that we discussed before from the room that we um, discussed from the Monday room. So I really didn't understand how, especially running marathons and all of this would be in any way beneficial for you to live long. If I, I don't, I still, it doesn't make any sense to me. I think in moderation and this kind of points towards that, right? Activity and moderation, sure, that's of course good, like not moving it has a lot of uh, risks, but over excessive uh, exercise that's really straining for your body, I don't understand how that's going to be good for you, like just logical thinking. <laughs> you have only so many heartbeats and this is the first paper that kind of points that direction because they also mentioned that there are families um, that have the similar fat and they are also, you know, not too thin and they never did too much exercise, but they also live long and very healthy. And I think from the studies we see in the blue zones, I don't think any of those were marathon runners <laughs> or you know, did crazy stuff like that, or Iron Man, or whatnot. Uh, they did everything in moderation. They ate in moderation. They did activity in moderation, like go for a walk every day, even in older age, and, and do their everyday things, being in fresh air, eating local food, also eating some sugar, you know, eat everything and do everything in moderation, kind of. And then it's genetics also. Um, but anyway. <laughs> point I was trying to make earlier about uh, where it tends to end up is that imagine if it's the first place it was deposited was higher on the human center of gravity, let's say the brain, even though um, <laughs> your gray matter and white matter is composed in some part uh, of fats, but I'm talking about external 
And the point is that your weight and balance will be thrown off. So there's a physics component of why it'll accumulate within range of your center of gravity. And obviously it can be below your center of gravity without compromising the center of gravity. Maybe they're, they're um, swimming or crawling along parallel to the earth. So they get little bellies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so I don't know if C. elegans is a, it's a nematode species. Is that right, Katarina? Yes. Yes. Okay, so then that would imply that it's a soil dwelling species. Uh, I don't know. I don't think you they have to be right. Exactly. Right. Everywhere. Because if it's a yeah. Right, so the, the reason I know that is because they can uh, be added to soil if you're a gardener in order to counter um, the types of organisms you don't necessarily want in your soil that are going to lead to your plants um, being diseased or not growing as well. So that was my reference point. And then exactly, it doesn't need to be confined to soil. They could be, uh, I bet pond water has <laughs> some species of nematodes in it. Um, so it all, you know, that will also change the equation. Yeah, there are aquatic nematodes. I think there's the thing where there's so many nematodes that you can see. If you, if you got rid of everything and had only nematodes, you would see the landforms. Yeah. And then everything else. Yeah, interesting. They know how to do there's it. Sorry, sorry, Serena, go ahead. <laughs> I just said there's a thought. Get behind the nematodes? Yeah, the nematode hills. <laughs> <laughs> Any further points on that? Or are we ready for the next one? I just want to say I love that article too. <laughs> Okay, then let's move on to the next thing. I'm turning the link. So next we had the ALS researcher, um, Dr. Brigitte Van Zundert. Um, she was a lot of fun. It was a early morning room. Um, so for me, you know, that early, that's not like a tour West Coast, definitely, definitely, I guess, too early. So at 9.30 a.m. But it was really worth it. Um, to come because she brought her whole lab like all her students were here uh that was really cool and um yeah she she enjoyed it i think she had a lot of fun jamie was here and um she uh did you know a lot of she does a lot of als work and um yeah if you want to check out the the paper there um, it's kind of really a uh, breakthrough and uh, I hope it will help a lot of people in the future. Um, so um, she saw that um, there's uh, in an excessive release of this inorganic polyphosphate um, in people or in ALS um, that is um, released by the astrocytes 
and this increased release and if you if you click on this um this image that is basically an image um, abstract of the study um you can see that uh, in als the astrocytes release way more of this polypy and um this will then gen this will then um, induce the death basically of the modern neurons and uh, since now we know um, what the mechanism is that kind of actively destroys the modern neurons we can address that um, in people with ILS in the future so that's a, a very short summary of that um, usually we need uh, poly P uh, to regulate um, um, to regulate like um, ion levels and so on um, in the cerebrospinal fluid um, that's kind of essential but uh, in ALS for some reason and we don't know exactly the reason why there's just um, hypothesis about it and you can uh, we, we discussed that a little bit in the room um, why they would release more policy it's probably because of um, something that the modern neurons that when they are inflammated or the system is inflammated there are certain mutations that kind of the, the glia release this more to compensate for that and um, but this overcompensation basically then ends up destroying the, the modern neurons so it would be really essential to either know exactly what triggers this over um, production of polypy or just um, downregulate the polypy overproduction, which could prevent basically the modern neuron death. Um, so I think that's really exciting because now we have a mechanism that we can try to fix. So um, I think it's huge that this uh, paper. Did we get any indication um, that it's the polyp itself, or is it in ultimately increasing phosphorylation patterns on the protein, which um, if that would rapidly increase, I understand in some systems it's the sort of an indication of, of um, where, you know, where the protein is in its own cycle in the sense that uh, too much phosphorylation and then it, it, it's tagged for recycling. So is it, um, or is it something specific about the poly P itself? Or is it that larger non-specific just increase in phosphorylation and overwhelming the cell and it, you know, becomes, it pre presents as something that needs to go? Yeah, so apparently, so we know there, there's an overexcitability of the modern neurons, which also kind of contributes to um, them being stressed. But um, she really showed that um, in this paper that just um, by poly P being enriched, um, and that this will, um, this excess will really kill pretty fast the modern neurons. So it's really the poly P um, and, um, they are enriched in, in these mouse models that carry mutations in these three different um, um, places. So SOD, 
TARDBP and C9ORFK2. Um, so, yeah, it's really the polypes that actively then defend or kill them. That's interesting. I, reminds me of when I was doing some molecular dynamics on phosphorylated proteins, and I had already been um, studying their um, their natural breathing motion for some time through through molecular dynamics. And when I prepared the phosphorylated systems, I was amazed at um, at, at at the effect on their dynamics. They they not only become um, much stronger uh, inter-residue hydrogen bonders, and they just sort of lock up chains. Um, but they they pull salts out of the out of the water so much more, and they and they essentially just turn the proteins to rocks. Um, but it's 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 such apparent um, change in the dynamics when you're already familiar with the you know the assembler modes uh, without being phosphorylated. So. Um, that's what brought that to mind, but but yeah, there's a just a profound effect on the motions of proteins as they become phosphorylated. Yeah, um, yeah. So, what these mutations in this genes um, mostly do is um, having just more calcium, and um, the theory is that this higher uh, levels of calcium triggers than the, the glia to uh, to deal with that and just um, increase then poly P, but this then increase the monomers in this case. But um, yeah. Do you think, I mean, are they, are they getting calcium phosphate precipitates? I mean, calcium has a high affinity for phosphate and you gotta keep your calcium separate from your phosphate. I'm, I'm wondering if that's any kind of complication there. Well, that's a good idea. Yeah, she she didn't, like she said, you know, she didn't know what the exact mechanism is, but that's actually a good idea. Yeah, you see, we missed you. <laughs> <laughs> I missed it, I know. But it, yeah, that's likely to get me starting to talk about the origin of life again. <laughs> Well, you we'll have enough, but you won't make it for the toilet room with the stardust and the origin of Yeah, I think it's really interesting and I think it's really promising. I think there's finally some light uh, in ALS uh, because it's been many years without real, like a real target to pinpoint the two. So I think. Would be very, um, yeah, very helpful for a lot of people that are quite um, without hope and currently. So I think it's good. And the thing is, though, what she also said that most um, ALS, most people with ALS don't have a genetic background. So um, she uses these mouse models. Uh, where they change the genes basically to um, the subset of people that just to have a mouse model um, to study ALS, uh, but in most people there's no genetic background. 
Um, and people don't know why they get ALS. They don't know yet. So a lot of her research also goes into trying to solve that question. So she um, also does a lot of studies uh, with different toxins, pollutants, and so on to see uh, the study better, what triggers like different stressors basically uh, to find out what triggers ALS in people that don't have this genetic background. But the theory is that this overproduction of poly P should still be um, should still be the case because it's kind of a compensation of a stressed out system mechanism that then ends up killing doing worse. <laughs> so uh, that's why I also think this is really important because most mouse model studies we do will help like three percent of people that have the disease like it's in all kinds of diseases uh, autism all kinds of that a relatively small subset have actually these mutations so uh, mechanisms that are kind of unrelated and not specific to that mutation i think are will help more people in the future. Given that you were saying that the genetic factor is not always the major factor in the equation, I was wondering, because I didn't have an opportunity to join that session, was there any variability in the diets that they were fed? I know a lot of times when we talk about animal studies, they're, they're if it's a newer study they're, and they're trying to prove proof of, uh, they're trying to do proof of concept, they don't really have the budget um, to feed different diets and see what the impacts and the manifestations are. But I didn't get a chance to catch the session. So was there any discussion or information regarding diet and how that may or may not impact? Because demyelination, you can to some degree supplement, depending on all the other factors that are happening, you may be able to supplement to to correct that um, inability to synthesize myelin. Obviously, there's another factor of, the, of a degeneration and where, what the reason for that is. It could be viral, it could be some other sort of biological thing or anything on those points. Uh, no, and I think diet is most likely not um, sufficient to induce KLS for diet. Um, it has to be a very big um, stress so it can be a combination of a lot of things that's the problem nowadays we are uh, usually exposed to many sub-threshold levels of of pesticides for example so um or other pollutants right we have regulations and you know most states of the that's actually pretty bad regulations but let's say california is a little bit better you have regulation of all these different compounds that they should stay under the threshold. But the problem is you have a big cocktail of everything. You know, you have the stupid stuff people put on their lawn to keep that pretty. You have all the stuff you have in your foods. You have all the stuff you're breathing in. And uh, it's really, really hard to pinpoint that down. But just, just regular diet, I don't think. Like, pesticides in your diet because it has to be something that 
goes through the membrane, right, and dissolves basically peptides, and then there are. So a lot of people suspect more kind of pesticides type of stuff, and because whatever kills a multicellular organism, multicellular multicellular organism, so <laughs> you are part of a killing party, basically. <laughs> Over time, <laughs> there, there's a new party for you. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, but that's that's why it's really really hard, right? To because it's you do then you use one factor, use one pesticide, and try that one out, and use it as a higher on a higher level. But that's not really what they're supposed to do. They would have to use a huge cocktail. <laughs> In addition to that, I'm sorry, Katarina, did I cut you off? No, no, go ahead. Didn't mean to. Um, there's, there's synergistic effects of other nasty things. I'm thinking about the hormone disrupting capabilities of plastics that, that we are surrounded by, you know, like earbuds and, and just it's, this stuff is everywhere in polyester and, and, you know, just all the plastic things that we use. And all the things that make up, um, you know, our computers and phones and devices that we can't live without. I won't talk about EMF, <laughs> but, but uh, you know, hormone disruption has got to be a thing. And I think in this room the other day I mentioned dryer sheets and that, that, that there are hormone disruptors in there. And they're not necessary. And, uh, yeah. Well, and, the, and a lot of these plastics and the substances are sponges for these residues, you know, um, pesticide residues that do have uh, hormone re effects. And um, yeah, it's just, you know, it's those. So everywhere is a field of unspent biological ordinance. It's nice. <laughs> That's an interesting way to phrase it. I agree with you. <laughs> um, Thanks for raising the synergistic effects um, and the synthetic odorant thing because the American, you can actually, if you're in a workplace and there's a synthetic odorant and you happen to be a, a quote unquote sensitive receptor, or maybe it's an issue of people just don't make the connection between, oh, every time I enter this room with this, uh, with the synthetic odorant dispenser, I have respiratory issues or, you know, I have some sort of some something that isn't present outside of that space is going on and they don't necessarily make the connection. Um, when I was talking about diet, dietary changes, it was less to in in terms of induction of this condition and more about correction. And to go back to the synergy um, in terms of the volume of compounds that are used in agricultural production or the production of other consumer goods versus the regulatory, the regulations on them, the regulations pale in comparison to the volume of compounds. And um, not really quite sure what to do about that, but that's an important factor. Yeah, I, I don't, I, we didn't go there for correction, but um, I just want to address that just by eating something that's let's say uh, let's say fat <laughs> to repair a membrane like it doesn't really work right because you dissolve everything like you, you digest stuff that you eat 
and it doesn't um, and then you kind of make of the make out of the compounds you digested and broke them up into um, then you may then the body makes basically the stuff they need to build this upon. So you break it up in Lego pieces and you use the Lego pieces to make something out of it. So uh, it's like um, this, this myth with um, uh, cholesterol, right? Uh, to eat less stuff with cholesterol. Just eating less of it uh, doesn't really most of the time fix the problem because your own body makes that bad cholesterol for whatever reason. So you need to take stuff that stops your body making uh, take medication and stops your body making bad cholesterol. Um, it doesn't really. There are for sure cases where, like, you can so preventive using it as a preventive uh, way for some um, people, that especially that have allergies or intolerances of stuff, because having a constant state of inflammation is uh, bad for your body and triggers all the stuff we have been talking about today uh, but uh, you this this pinpoints to that there's an active process of the body killing the modern and that you cannot fix with a diet you have to basically stop this polypi um, like down regulate the levels of polypi and I would assume in the future there would be vaginal expression regulation so you suppress basically the activity of uh, the physiology of the, the glia to produce polyclean. Um, so that would probably be a future. It will take a while because it's kind of an expression therapy, I would say. Or, uh, I wonder if there's a microRNA strategy there. Yeah, yeah, that, that would be microRNA strategy, regulating the gene expression. Like not, you know, uh, changing the genes per se, you just don't regulate them, suppress them. And you cannot completely, the problem is you cannot uh, completely stop it because you need polypi, so you just have to downregulate it at the, so it's, it won't be that easy to address that, but I think it's solvable in the future. If it was easy, it would have been done by now, right? Yeah, well, no, because we didn't know what what to stop until now. Until this paper, we didn't know what to fix. Yeah, so we couldn't even have done anything. It's important to know what to fix, yeah. <laughs> we tried a lot of time to fix them and things and then that was all. So, yeah, this was a fun room, I think. Uh, Jamie, do you have something to add? You were there, you did a great job interviewing her too. Um, I believe it, the, the things she was working on was truly remarkable and I, I think I also really um, found it interesting when um, as a being a researcher she was looking into anything at all that could um, nail down factors of cause or or even slow cause. Remember she said how 
they were looking at environment they were even looking at people like, like you know, meditation and like everything internal and external they were looking all around the board for any sort of like um um link any sort of pattern anywhere because they said it was like you said it couldn't be immediately found as being boom they've got this gene so they're going to get ill or people are going to get ill or anything like that so um i actually i found her entire um approach to it and her entire methodology to be kind of inspiring and it kind of meant that this is a, a problem that i feel is in very good hands as it stands <laughs> And then Ethan, you wanted to add something? Okay, any further discussion? Seeing none, let's take it to the next one. Okay, uh, then we can move on to the Fridays when we have um, maybe the guest speaker that um, where we talked about the ex utero uh, mouse development. It's a really exciting study because um, by using, by having a model where the mouse grows up basically outside of um, the utero of the mom, you can image the, the development the whole time you can label uh, with um, using um, with implementing some genes that have fluorescent mark that are fluorescent markers you can uh, observe the cells during development at all times um, and you can control the environment really easily um, uh, you can um, add things or take things away from the media. So, so um, this is a really exciting study and will give uh, will give us a platform or is giving us a platform to um, to exactly study where do these type of cells go, uh, how do they look like, um, how do they grow. How do they differentiate? Uh, if you add this, um, how does how is it going to be disturbed? Uh, does it lead maybe to um, autism disorders or other developmental disorders or even long-term um, disorders? So um, that's why this is a really exciting and really important study, and it's a lot of work to do this. Uh, it's really very labor intensive and um, so what they did they were able to um, develop a mouse ex utero until um, a day 11.5 which is almost like just uh, a few more days and the mouse would be would be uh, actually full term uh, full term yeah and um, yeah, so they have to kind of transition from a static culture, the animal, to um, to a roller cu a culture, they name it. 
um, in order to keep uh, moving around the media so it gets to all the cells and move around the oxygen constantly. And that switch has to happen at E8.5, um, which I found was interesting. And um, yeah, you can look at the paper, it's really pretty images and they took a lot of um, uh, looking at all these different cell types where they end up. If you look at figure, uh, figure, you know, figure one, uh, you see the embryo development and figure two, you um, look at uh, to day two, what happens to the different um, cells, and then they compare this to an animal that is um, in utero, and um, they show basically if you look at figure two and you compare the two, uh, they are really very like almost identical. Um, so uh, the development is going well. Uh, and then they continue this in figure three and confirm again even with the roller culture they achieve to also have that um, ex utero development um, identical to the in utero development until um, E11, which is really impressive. And, um, and yeah, and then they just try to, through electroporation, to induce some microgenes, and then um, you could really see, and it looks really pretty in figure four, um, how uh, you could trace basically where the cells that are expressing these microgenes, where they go and how they develop. Um, so yeah, this is basically a technology development paper that creates this platform for us and this method for us to uh, do this. In the future, they want to ideally go full gestation, but this will take a while until now you really need the placenta uh, because after this E11.5, they start dying off pretty rapidly. So um, they assume that um, it's really a placenta is really needed for the, the end part of the gestation. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's the future goal to go full term, basically. Um, yeah, and then if you go and look at the supplementary figures, there are a lot of more very pretty figures where um, they recapulate like the, the early gastrulation, uh, the spatial temporal expression profiles of uh, lineage markers um, seen in utero and uh, yeah, a lot of more uh, gene, um, a lot of more sequencing data. So uh, yeah, it's, it's a huge um, work. Also, he said that he's a PhD student now for five years and somebody else already two years before him had started this project. So. This paper is many years and uh, a lot of work. So, yeah, it was really great. Can I just ask um, for the room and for all the, the, the lay people listening um, if anybody could properly define what um, 
uh, a medium uh, medium actually is because I know that when I was looking at the paper, I, I that word doesn't mean what I thought it meant. It was like a very specific biological thing. Uh, but I don't want to try defining my half understanding of it and get it wrong. So if anybody can... It's yeah. just the solution you use uh, to uh, grow the cells in, or then later the embryo, and you come up with a recipe that makes them survive. So it has like different salt, different uh, sugar in it, and growth factors, and so on. So yeah, if you did high school biology, you know the medium is the agar plates and the Luria broth usually for most people. That's just you know, it's a typical. Oh yeah, that's to grow bacteria, right? But in yeah, cell culture, yeah, but it's a myth. Right. In you have different. Culture, you have different. You don't. Yeah, in cell culture, you don't have an agar plate. Medium means, like, uh, in the stable cell culture, you you have that. Let's say just regular stem cells. You have a dish, uh, that is some. Uh, depending how good they basically stick to a surface, the cell types you're using, you either just have a regular, like a dish, uh, or you have to coat it with something so they stick better. And then the, the medium is just the 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 fluid that has like all the essential nutrients the cells need to keep surviving and growing. And sometimes you need growth factors in them too. You can add uh, differentiating factors to the media if you want to be very specific what a stem cell should differentiate into. So media just means um, the solution you use uh, with all the nutrients um, the cells need to keep growing. That's, I just love to hear that's fascinating thank you very much for explaining that much better Thanks. some people haven't had the opportunity of the privilege of education in these settings so it's good to explain um, for people who haven't had the opportunity like i said i was one of them <laughs> if it wasn't for me like reading the paper i i i just wouldn't have even guessed it and there's, there's no way i could have even intuited from that so that's why i really really appreciate the explanation and it's it's good to know that um there's so much more to that the thing that's interesting to me because i had to i had another engagement i had to get to in the middle of the room so it was very interesting to to see that there was um, a limit on the 12 days is the maximum experimental time that they were able to run uh, versus full term to define it would be 19 to 20 days in a mouse versus 270 days in a human. And the lack of a placenta is really interesting because in, I haven't looked at um, these sorts of studies in humans if they are doing that without a placenta, but the placenta is a critical structure in terms of um, providing protection to the gestating infant. Um, so it does make sense that that's a limiting factor so far in the experiment overall. And I, I'm, I'm really excited to hear how they plan to bridge that gap. I just think what's interesting yeah, about that one. Fake, oh. Sorry, sorry. Fake placenta. You can grow a fake placenta probably out of placenta. But it's, you know, it's not as easy then as 
just said, but in theory it's possible that you have to uh, differentiate them into the right stuff and, uh, and grow a big placenta. One wonders how, how uh, easy it would be to replicate it. Like, yes, we could run stem cells and have them differentiate in XYZ fashion, but then we'll have to, through experimentation, see if that actually um, can match the, the non-engineered form. And, you know, that's, that's just a matter of time. It's just mathematics and experimentation. I don't understand why you always say that's mathematics. Um, so what do you mean with engineer? Just having a pump that does the job well, for example, for example, there are um, in medical, there are experiments where they're trying to using 3D printing, uh, using biological. Um, yeah, that's what I do for a job. <laughs> 3D printing. I know. So, but that's what I mean. You still have to use stem cells and differentiate them and then 3D print them. So then, is there, is, has, has this been, it sounds like, maybe I heard you wrong, but it sounds like this uh, placenta, engineer placenta has, is not stable or have, have I'm sure. I don't know if they tried it. I don't, I haven't, I have to Google it. I never made a placenta. Okay. Um, that's an interesting question, huh? What I thought was interesting when speaking to Alejandro was that, um, they hadn't even got to the stage of having to use it yet. They hadn't um, got the development to the point that it would be reliant on a placenta. Um, so it was like very much a problem for, you know, for tomorrow, as it were. And I can also um, because I don't... Yeah, it also yeah, point... so apparently there has, in Vienna, University of Technology in Austria, they have made an artificial placenta in the lab. A laser-based 3D printing process uh, to produce customized hydrogel membranes directly within microfluid chips, which are then populated with placenta cells. And um, yeah, so, and this means it is now possible to provide parity in some vital research issues such as the exchange of glucose between mother and child. But, you know, they always say mother and child in a very human way, but this is not allowed in humans. In humans, you are only allowed to grow an embryo in a dish until 14 days uh, based on ethical issues. Jamie, then also Ethan. Other. Jamie, then Ethan. Oh, yeah, I was, like I said, I, I was pretty much done, but I was just saying when I'm uh, talking to him, um, it was it was exciting in the fact that um, there were still issues, uh, you know, obviously challenges um, along this because the development had only reached, what, about, about 11, 12 days maximum. And he said that right now they haven't got it to the point that it needs to be in the placenta. Um, I mean, the, the issues do come ahead when they have to start looking at the placenta um, are coming, but you know, they could be easily fixed or they could not be. And that's, yeah, that was just my thought. Well, nothing of this is easy. It sounds easy because we squeeze it into a paper and say, oh, this is how we do it, but nothing of this is uh, trivial to do. Uh, so, um, 
<laughs> yeah, it's also interesting because you know this is a, a uterine thing, but you know there's a when you look at evolution of biology, you have a you have other options too. Like you may not have even though this is a mouse, which is a placental mammal. There's a whole branch on the evolutionary tree of non-placental mammals. You know we see them populating the continent of Australia. Uh, and then there's even branches amongst those in terms of monotremes and, and those kinds of creatures. So it's possible that even though a mouse is a, you know, that they may choose to extend that in vitro uterine kind of thing with uh, knowledge gained from studying uh, that other branch of mammals. Um, there are any more questions about the study with the ex utero? I think, yeah, it's really important for the future of studying these platforms. Um, and um, yeah, I think they should have yeah. named the paper. <laughs> I thought the paper should be named or subtitled "A Womb with a View." Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> that's a good one. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> well punned. Very punny stuff. Yeah, I think it was another very exciting week uh, of really breakthroughs, uh, science and scientists coming here, working on the edges of our knowledge. And um, so I really appreciate everyone coming here um, and being part of this, uh, learning about what's currently going on in science on the edge of our knowledge and next week we have uh some more of um these exciting we have actually a lot because of rescheduling from previous uh rooms we ended up with having two days with two rooms actually um but i still didn't want to say no because um, i think it's exciting research and i wanted to learn about it um so uh, we'll have Dr. Levy talking about regulating genes without alter altering the genome. So here we go, Serena. <laughs> we, will, we will learn about how to uh, modulate polyp without uh, changing the genome per se. <laughs> that will be exciting. Then on Tuesday, we'll have Dr. Ernst. It's another developmental um, study. He found a dimmer switch for human brain cell growth. Um, which is can be really important later for rejuvenation and, and other things. So and fixing brains from um, replacing, let's say, dopamine cells and and Parkinson and so on. So I think this is another very important uh, research breakthrough that will be very beneficial for a lot of different disorders and aging. And then we'll have also on Tuesday, Dr. Gallardo, and he will actually talk about Alzheimer's and how to reduce the brain damage in Alzheimer's. Um, it's a really exciting story. And then we'll have um, Unlocking the Code of Sight with Dr. Bruce Hansen. He will talk about how, uh, yeah, how our visual system works um, and his new paper that talks about it. And then we'll have Dr. Kultak um, that will at 10 a.m. talk about 
the interior of protons and how he showed that they are actually maximally entangled. There's been hypothesis about it and he showed evidence for it, so it will be really exciting. And um, Dr. Huang, and he will talk about this really controversial topic, I think, but he found that most smokers actually don't get lung cancer, although they smoke, and why that is. And he found, um, he found um, a mechanism and published it. So um, uh, in Nature Genetics. So uh, yeah, we'll be. I'm really interested in learning about that. And then we'll have from Japan, uh, Dr. Yanagisawa and the postdoc uh, Dr. Fukuma and reading the pictures of mind eye so uh, they can read basically of the imagery that you are performing <laughs> in your thoughts and read that up uh, which is also I think very interesting especially for people with locked-in syndrome and so on um, so Maybe some people will also find it creepy, so I'll expect this to be also maybe a little bit controversial, but it's uh, it's really uh, interesting research. I'm actually incredibly excited about next week. Each one of them, when I was looking at the, the list down the line and everything you've said about them, sounds absolutely fascinating. I am, I'm going to be there, and I hope everybody else is going to be there too, because uh, there's going to be much questions to be had much things to discover and uh, you know wonders to be revealed Ooh. they really do sound like quite a lineup I mean interiors of protons like what a what a reveal followed by interior of your head yeah <laughs> <laughs> both of which are maximally entangled interesting parallels <laughs> huh yeah, yeah the incredible. paper, the paper is evidence for the maximally entangled low X proton and deep inelastic scattering from H1 data. Uh, it's in the European Physical Journal, if you want to, and it was just pub uh, published February 4th this year, so if you want to look it up. But I can also send you the papers, whoever wants to read any of this beforehand, I can send you the links and the papers. That would be 100%. great. I you know, often yep. run into fire or paywalls. Um, I'll be over with that, yeah. Yeah, this one is open access. I think this week we have a lot of open access. Oh, okay. Access, but okay, great. But I might sometimes not realize because I'm locked in. Uh, uh, and then I don't, I don't realize. The only problem I have to access is Elsevier. Uh, for some reason, NYU Langone doesn't, doesn't have a deal with them apparently. And some smaller uh, journals, um, sometimes like some small psychology journals and so on. Uh, we don't apparently have like deals with them, so. Yeah. But then I'll ask, usually if I don't have, I'll ask the, the authors to send a PDF along. Another workaround sometimes is that um, the preprint will be posted to a server in, in greater accessibility. And 
then you can work off of that. The peer review side of it um, may be different. Katarina, would you say it's substantially different or substantially similar? Yeah, not everyone does preprint um, because not all journals like it. So okay. you're, it can be better or worse for you to make a preprint. Also, some people can do it because of regulations of their grants, if it's like DOD or some um, foundations or they want uh, to be the first ones to see the data and they are not very open to share if it's a company. They only want to share the data once, like they get a head start, head start working with it. So uh, many people now use preprints, but a lot of people don't for many reasons. So yeah, it's uh, yeah, it depends. But the preprint version, uh, you cannot. So once you cannot upload the peer reviewed version the journal doesn't allow you uh, because you basically it's a combined effort from you and the journal to um, come up with the peer-reviewed uh, version and then also the the reviewers get um, also mentioned there so uh, they don't allow you to upload the peer-reviewed version to the preprint place so it's very interesting how my understanding is that a lot of the journals, um, especially the larger ones, the, re the peer reviewers are not compensated monetarily. Uh, they do get this prestige factor, but um, the journals can be very profitable. So there's a, I feel like that leads to certain types of works being prioritized in terms of what is reviewed. Sometimes reviews can take very long and same sort of review can take very short depending on, I suppose, the merits and also the incentives. Yeah, so the incentive is for you to get grants and uh, you should have in your CV that you peer reviewed a bunch of, that you part of a peer review team or whatever, even better editor at some journal. It's. Uh, people expect that from you and additionally one day you should even work for free for NIH and NSF and review the uh, grants for them. It's also for free what people do. It's all like pressuring uh, scientists to do more work for free and um, the pressure point is you don't get grants or tenure or whatever if you don't do this stuff. So. Yeah, the preprints can be risky because, you know, often there's a process of journal shopping. You know, you try with your highest journal and, and you know, often it can bounce off several journals before it gets published. And you get the review comments along the way. So sometimes they're substantial. But there's another game that gets played on the reviewer side is, you know, it's supposed to stay anonymous. And, but, you know, they often the way they'll reveal themselves is, you know, a review comment will not you know the the the, the a distinct phraseology or something is sort of a well, signature well, even more blatant the author failed to cite the impala in, you know the following important work and then they cite their own papers <laughs> and ask to, to include it so <laughs> but that's you know that's a way for you know labs to sort of get their you know their mark in papers that they want to and there's a lot of those world games that go on. 
Oh, yeah, and then you have also the senior scientists that are in the review committee and just don't want a competing, if they're working on something similar, which most of them are, because that's how they are picked, uh, then they don't want a competing uh, paper to be currently published and um, or basically they, they are working on a similar grant or whatnot, uh, or just copy your stuff. Use it on their own. That happens, yeah. yeah. I always heard the phrase, um, the peer review process is the worst system in the world until you consider the alternatives. <laughs> it's interesting, this conflict between um, the requirement of reproducibility to be valid science and then these other mechanisms that are perhaps impeding the free sharing of ideas. Yeah, peer reviewing is like aging. The alternative is dying, so until <laughs> we fix that big problem. And I think finding a better alternative is probably just as hard as fixing aging. So. You know, I, I somehow feel that that should be on a really, really like nerdy t-shirt. Peer reviewing is like aging. It, the alternative is dying. I, I don't know. I, just, I, I can see that as being like some really awesome nerdy T-shirt that most people wouldn't get, but I'd love it anyway. <laughs> yeah, as as opposed to when you just walk around with Maxwell's equations on the show. <laughs> oh, I want one of them. <laughs> no one what I'm going to get for Christmas. <laughs> Well, okay. Thank you for this wonderful room. I have to go. Um, enjoy your Sunday. Um, happy spring. Happy holidays. Enjoy your chocolate desserts, whatnot. And uh, thank you all for another great week. And I'm looking forward to spend another great week with you guys. So we are also kind of pressing, basically. <laughs> if you want to see it that way, we are very, very resilient and using medicine. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Thanks for conducting these rooms, Katrina. I appreciate Thank it you. very much. Thank you very much, Thanks, Katrina. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Serena. Thanks, Serena. Thank you for Bye. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.